Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we're going to be at. And uh, I'm going to read verses. I'm going to pick up right where we left off two weeks ago. And I'm going to begin in verse 4. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter. We're going to be looking at 3 a little bit. Uh, but really just kind of referring to it. So Nehemiah chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, that letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for. The good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors in the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent, to, had, had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalai the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it, pleased them greatly that some, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. For there was, there was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up to in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were, who, were, who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I, I told them the hand of, of my God had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalai and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us, despised us, and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. We as servants will rise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Father, we ask that you would help us as we uh, look at at Nehemiah chapter 2. Father, I pray that you would give us principles for leadership and for, um, God, for building something great in our families and with our children and our marriages, with our, our church and our small group and ministries, with making disciples who will make disciples who will reach the ends of the earth. Father, help us to build. God, let us arise and build. God, put it in our hearts to do so. God, speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so a quick review of Nehemiah. Not going to do the extensive review we did the first week, but just kind of a little brief one. Okay, so God first brings the children of Israel out of Egypt by Moses, right? And they're headed to the promised land. 
And during that time, he makes it very clear. And you can, you can read this in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and, and even the book of Joshua, that, that God makes a covenant with his people. And he says, okay, if you rebel against me, if, if, if you turn to idolatry, if you, if you follow the gods of the other nations around you, then, then you're going to be disciplined. I, I'm, I'm going to send you into exile. I, I will not allow that. And, and in fact, when all this begins to happen, Jeremiah the prophet says it's going to happen. Uh, you have rebelled. You have sought idols. You have turned away from God. And you're going to go into exile for 70 years. Jeremiah actually prophesies before it happens how many years they're going to be in exile. And so sure enough, in 722, the northern kingdom uh, is destroyed by the Assyrians. In 586, the Babylonians destroy the southern kingdom and take them into captivity for 70 years, okay? And so that, that period of time is called the exile. That, that's what it, that's what we were, how we refer to that is the exile. So, so the people went into the promised land, they came out of Egypt into the promised land, that they had a long series there with the kings and the prophets, but they continued to disobey God, to turn to idols. And so God's disciplining hand came upon them. He takes them, allows their enemies to defeat them, takes them into exile for 70 years. And now we kind of pick up our story with Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah is part of the movement back to Jerusalem. God, God moves in fantastic ways. So while they're in exile, the, the Medes and the Persians destroy the Babylonians. They, they overtake the Babylonians. And so now they're in charge right and when the 70 years is up God moves in the heart of Cyrus he is this pagan Persian king that has nothing to do with the Bible or Jerusalem or anything but God moves in his heart and causes him to say hey you know what all you Jews you can go back and so there's waves of Jewish people that are going back to Jerusalem the first wave uh, happens by, by a guy named Zerubbabel uh, the second wave is 80 years later by a guy named Ezra you can read about that in the book right before Nehemiah and then 13, way, 13 years after Ezra is Nehemiah okay so two weeks ago we were in chapter one kind of setting the the tone for the book of Nehemiah and we, we talked a lot about having a burden for something because that, that's really how Nehemiah begins okay in chapter one Nehemiah Nehemiah hears about the state of Jerusalem and immediately God just lays this burden, this kind of crushing brokenness of what ought to be on, on, on Nehemiah's life. Uh, he hears the story in chapter 1 verse 3 of, of the remnant in Jerusalem is, is in great trouble and shame and, and the walls, this particularly grabs hold of him, the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. Now, now Nehemiah, that, that, that grabs hold of his heart because of this, he knows from the scriptures what Jerusalem ought to be. He, he's read Isaiah 62 that says that Jerusalem is supposed to be the city of God. It's supposed to be a light to the nations. It's supposed to be the center of worship and the word of God. And it's in rubble. And it cannot ever thrive or be what it ought to be, what God intended it to be, what God made it to be until the walls are restored in the city. And so Nehemiah has a, has a burden, he, he has a burden, he has this, this kind of crushing brokenness over what ought to be in Jerusalem. Now, that burden leads him to relentless prayer. We talked about that. That's really what we talked about most of, of two weeks ago, was how Nehemiah's burden led him into four months of fasting and praying and, and, and seeking God uh, for, for what he would have him to do about, about what, what's happened in Jerusalem. And that relentless prayer leads him to risk-taking action. And that's kind of where we left uh, last or two weeks ago. It was Nehemiah finally when the timing is right. Which, by the way, there's a ton to, to learn from the book of Nehemiah about timing. 
You know, I don't know about you guys, but like I, I have a hard time keeping things in. Like I think if I were Nehemiah, like as soon as I would have heard about it, you know, that day I would have went to the king, you know, just all sad faced and broken and crying and, you know, king, I can't, you know, Nehemiah doesn't do that at all. He, he's a guy that really is calculated in his timing and in his waiting on the Lord. He waits for four months and, and finally, you know, kind of gets the nudge of the Holy Spirit that the time is right. And, and, and so he comes before the king. Now remember, he's the cupbearer to the king. Okay. Now the simple answer to that is he tastes all the wine and food that the king gets to make sure it's not poison. But but the long answer to that is he's almost like a chief of staff. He's almost like a a uh, 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 an intimate counselor and, and companion to the king. All right. That that was the position that kind of raised Nehemiah up into. Now he's still a slave. Okay. He, it's not like he's an elected official or anything like that. He's really not free. He he he's again a Jewish captive. But but he's been raised up to this exalted position in the kingdom of, of Persia. Okay, and so he gets the nudge by the Spirit. One more quick prayer. I, I love this in verse 4. He says, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And, and, and Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. You know, in, in those seconds between the king says, what are you asking me for? He, he immediately is still praying, right? So, so immediately he shoots off a prayer. God, this is it. Help me. The time is right. And, and then he, he reveals his burden to the king. And he asked for several things. He asked for time off. He asked for resources to rebuild. He asked for uh, the force of the king's political muscle to, to be able to get him to Jerusalem and to get all the things he needs in Jerusalem and to be able to begin rebuilding the wall when the nations around Jerusalem are kind of still at them. And that's where we pick up things today, okay? Now, here's, here's the gist of what happens. Nehemiah gets everything he asked for. How many times has that happened in your life? You know, how many times do you just kind of, you know, offer this, hey, I'd like this, 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 and this, and, and you get absolutely everything that you ask for. That, that's exactly what happens. I mean, I mean, Nehemiah is a slave in, a, in the Persian Empire, and, and he comes to the king who's got nothing to do, should not care a world about anything in Jerusalem, and Nehemiah lays out, hey, look, I'd like basically 12 years off. <laughs> you know, how, how about that? How about that for vacation days? I'd, I'd like 12 years off. I, I'd like for you to throw your political muscle behind me, in, enabling me to, to be able to navigate through the nations around Jerusalem and to be able to, to get everything I need from those four nations and so that they would not hinder the progress. You bet. He says, and by the way, you've got a forest close to Jerusalem. The guy there, his name is Asaph. He runs the place. Would you give me complete access to all the materials I need to rebuild the wall in this city? And the king says, yes, 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 yes. I mean, he gets everything he asked for. Now, why did that happen? Well, he tells us why that happened, okay? So, so he knows, I, I mean, I don't know if you think that's a phenomenal thing. It really is a phenomenal thing, you know? Uh, I mean, to, to go before this pagan king and, and to ask for everything that you need to get this thing done 700 miles away, all right? And, and for the king to grant everything you need. Here's why. Look at verse 8. Uh, he's finishing his request here, and he says, And a letter to Asaph, the king of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the forge of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I ask. And then here's the why. Okay, this is very important. Here's the why. For the good hand of my God was upon me. 
All right, now, that's, that's going to be an important phrase. That actually is an incredibly important phrase in this time period, okay? It, it occurs like four times in the book of Ezra. The book right before this, same time period, Ezra talks about that like four different times. The good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah will say it here. He'll say it again at the end of chapter 2 when he is describing to the, the people in Jerusalem why they need to rise up and build. He talks about the good hand of my God being upon me. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, here's the way I would describe it. The good hand of my God being upon me means that God's muscle is behind his efforts to rebuild Jerusalem. Okay, it it means that the power of the Holy Spirit is enabling him to accomplish the thing that he set his mind to. It means that God is in front of you and he's opening doors, and he's making things happen, and he's changing heart, and he's pretty much making all the impossible things for you possible. All right? So that would be some ways to talk about God's good hand upon you. Here's another way to think about it. The other day, Colt and I wanted to take a walk, and uh, the, the, the tires on the stroller were flat, which happens a lot. And so we got out our air pump real quick, and, and I hooked him up uh, to the first tire. And Cole's like, I want to do it, I want to do it, I want to do it, okay? And so I'm like, okay, you know, this, this is good. So I hook it on there and everything, and he gets on, and he's got to reach. He can barely reach the top of it, you know, and he's, you know. And, and here's, here's the reality. If left to himself, we have flat tires and nothing's going to change that because he can't do it, all right? But what ended up happening was he's got his little two hands up there on that pump and I put about three fingers in between his hands. That's about how many will fit and we pump up. He, he's pumping up the tires, right? right? Uh, that, that's exactly what Nehemiah is describing here. Nehemiah is saying, you know, I, I went and asked the king for all this and the king gives me everything that I asked for. Why? Because the good hand of my God was upon me. In other words, God's power, God's finger was was in between his hands on the plow or the pump or the computer or the phone or, or the pen or whatever it is that Nehemiah or you and I are attempting for God and God makes it possible by, by his power. Now, now here's, here's, a, here's, a, here's a good question. Does this ever happen to anybody else or is it just Nehemiah? Is it just Nehemiah that attempts great things and God comes in and puts his finger on the pump and, and just makes it work, like, like opens all the doors? Did, does that happen to anybody else? It absolutely does, okay? Let me give you some examples. One of the, one of the examples I immediately thought of was Joseph, okay? If you've ever read the story of Joseph, the guy goes through incredible hardship, but at the same time, everywhere he goes, God's hand is upon him and he just rises to the top. So let, let, me, let me read you part of the story of Joseph, okay? So Genesis 39, this is right after he's been uh, thrown into uh, slavery by his brothers and, and transported to Egypt. So Genesis 39 says, now Joseph, this is verse 1, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of, of the guard of, e- of the Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. Yeah, that's a key phrase. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of, of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Right? And so, so Joseph just, whatever he puts his hand to, it just succeeds. Why? Because God has his finger there. Right? 
Uh, he ends up, things go badly, he gets falsely accused, he goes into prison. But even in prison, listen to how it describes his time in prison. Okay, so verse 20, same chapter. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. You see, that phrase continues to occur. Let me read you a little bit out of Ezra. So Ezra is the book right before Nehemiah. In Ezra chapter 7, look at verse uh, uh, 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Uh, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. If we'd go ahead and read verse 27 and 28, it says the same thing again and again. All right, so, so yes, the answer is, yes, it does happen to other people, okay? So God does do that. God does, like, people have goals and aspirations, and they're trying to do great things, and God puts his hand on it, and it just succeeds, all right, now, my next question, this is just the progression that I think of them. So, so, okay, so I see what God did for Nehemiah, and then I ask, well, does God do that for anybody else? Okay, we just answered that. Yes, he does. Joseph, Ezra, we, we could read lots of others, okay? So what's my next question going to be? Will he do that for me? Like, I, like I really want that, right? I really want that. I, I would love for, you know, whatever, whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm pursuing, whatever I'm, I'm striving for, man, that God would just reach down and put his hand on the pump, you know, put his hand on the pot, and it, and it would just work. Like, I, I want that. How do I get that? Well, there's good news and bad news. Probably the bad news that we have to say right away is, is that God is not a God who can be manipulated, and he's not a God that we can manufacture him to do things, Okay. So, so there's a verse in the Bible that says God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. That's absolutely true, okay? So, so I guess the short answer is I, I cannot make God do anything, okay? God, God does whatever he pleases. Um, if he wants to put his hand in favor, he will. If he doesn't, he won't. And whatever he does is good and perfect and right. So that, that's probably the short answer, okay? Now, that would be a... The sermon would just be done if we stop there. So, I, I, you know, the longer answer is I do think there are ways that we can position ourselves that make it a lot more likely that God would put his hand on what we're, what we're building, okay? So let's talk about that. So what, what are those things that make that more likely that God would put his hand on, what, on our life's work? Can we just say that? on our last work. Number one, be about God's mission. Be about what God is building, okay? I think this is huge, all right? So, so notice that Nehemiah is not just arbitrarily picking a project, all right? He's not wanting to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem because this is his favorite vacation spot, you know? He's not wanting to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem because that's where he wants to retire someday. You know, or the, 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 the climbing is a lot better for his health. It, it has nothing to do with what Nehemiah wants. It has everything to do with what God wants, right? So, so the first thing we got to say here is if I want to position and posture myself so that the hand of God would be upon my life's work, then I need to be about God's mission. 
right? God was the one who said, God was the one who gave Nehemiah this burden, okay? The ought came from God. What Nehemiah said ought to be in Jerusalem, that, that came from God. God is the one who said the Jews ought to be a light to the nations. God is the one who said the Jews will be the incubator through which I, I send the Messiah who's going to come into the world and he's going to be the vessel through which God brings his word and God plays out his story and sends his son. I mean, that was God's decision. And so it's not that Nehemiah has the hand of God upon just whatever he wants to do, you know? It's not like Nehemiah could say, you know, God, I've always wanted to build a casino on the Euphrates River. Yeah, you know, I've always wanted to own a Persian uh, NFL team. Or, you know, God, I've always wanted to have my own cooking show, you know. And so, God, would you put your hand up? Now, some of those things might be okay and some of them might happen. And Nehemiah might succeed at him because he's a high-capacity guy. All that is true. But that is different than God's hand being upon you. Okay, and so when God's hand is upon you, what we see in the Scriptures, it's because God is doing his own mission, and we, we are the, we're the means by which God does that. And, and so I guess one way you could say it is, make sure that we get the mission from God and not give the mission to God. Which, which are you doing in your life? I, I think everybody's in one of those categories. You're either getting the mission from God or you're giving the mission from God. You're either saying, you know, God, I want to be about what you're about. I'm looking to see what you're doing and I want to jump in on that. Or you're the type of person that says, God, I'm doing this. Please come along. God, why, why won't you come along? God, I get really hacked off when you don't bless what I'm doing here. Okay, so w- which of those do you tend to be about? Nehemiah understands this. So, so Nehemiah 2 verse 12, look, look at what he says. He says, then I rose at night and, and a few men with me and, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do. You see, he's not confused about where this burden came from. He's not confused about why he's in Jerusalem, why he's, why he's trying to rebuild walls. He's not confused about that. He understands God put this in me. This is God's purpose. This is God's mission. This is God's burden. Right? And so Nehemiah is living out the mission of God. Now, man, we've got the same stuff, guys. Has God spoken to us? He absolutely has. You know, Matthew 28, 18, you know, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And what's the next phrase? Lo, I'm with you always. That's kind of another way of saying, man, I'll have my hand on that. My hand will be on that. And we have all kinds of other missions in the scriptures that we are to be about. I was thinking about uh, experiencing God. You know, we, we don't do that. How many of you have done that Henry Blackaby deal? You know, that was, that was quite a while ago. That was big. When I first came to Lincoln, we did it like almost every year, you know. But kind of the, the, the main thrust of that experiencing God, Henry Blackaby study, was, was this verse in John. If I remember right, I hope I'm not like, I didn't check this, so I, but I, I'm pretty sure it is. Is is John five nineteen, and it says, Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise." Jesus is talking about himself, and, and do you hear what he says? He says, "I don't, I don't do anything that's just like my rogue idea." I I look to see what is my father doing, and then I do what he's doing. Now, if if Jesus lived that way, how much more should you and I live that way? 
It's like, man, I want to do exactly what my father's doing. I want to work where my father's working. All right, and so, so point number one is Nehemiah was about God's mission. And I, and I think that, that puts you in a place where God's hand can be upon you. Number two, Nehemiah was available for God's mission, all right? I'm not going to say a whole lot about this, but, but what really grabbed my attention was, was verse 5 and 6 when he's talking to the king, and, and, and he keeps saying, And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Verse 6, and the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And then, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. That, that, that phrase, send me, just kept jumping out at me. I, I think partly because of Isaiah 6, 8. Remember that when Isaiah has the vision of the glory of God in the temple and, and, and he hears the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for me? And then Isaiah stands up and says, here I am, send me, you know, send me. And, and so I, I was thinking about that when I was looking at Nehemiah 2 and I thought, man, this guy is available. This is going to ruin his life, honestly. Like he's got a great gig going here. He has risen up probably as high as you can get in the Persian Empire. He probably had all kinds of perks, all kinds. And, and you know what? All of that's got to stop if he's going to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. This is not like, hey, I'm taking a three-week mission trip. I'll be back. This, is, this, is, this ends up being 12 years of his life, at least. All right? And, and here's the thing about Nehemiah. He's available. He's available. Everything, he's willing that everything else in his life take a back seat to the mission of God. He's the kind of person that says, God, my life is yours. My schedule is yours. My goals, my, my future, my aspirations, they're yours. He's the kind of guy that says, I believe you can do more with my life than I can. And so I'm available. You, you know the hardest thing about being available? Interestingly enough, it is not saying yes to the mission of God. My experience is most Christians say, are willing to say yes to the mission of God. A lot fewer people are willing to say no to all the other stuff that they have to say no to in order to make that a reality. That's the tough part. Saying yes. I mean, I hardly ever hear a Christian, you know, who I say, hey, you know, God's called us to go make disciples. They're like, no, 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 I'm not going to do it, you know. God's called us to, you know, no, no, I'm not going to. I mean, hardly anybody says no to the, are you willing? But a whole bunch of people, for whatever reason, can't ever get to the point of saying, you know what, I'm not going to be a part of that because i got to be a part of the mission of God. And I, I'm not going to do that because i got to be a part of the mission of God. And we as a family, we're going to structure our lives so that we are available for God's mission. Number three, Nehemiah followed the process of pray, scripture, plan. All right, this, this is really important. Okay, so if you're a writer downer, pray, scripture, plan, all right? That, that's one of the greatest things I think that we can learn from Nehemiah. I, I, love, I love these kinds of books in the Bible where we get to see this guy kind of living out God's mission right in front of us and we get to kind of watch him do it. And one of the things that you see from Nehemiah is we saw him pray two weeks ago. We, we saw, saw him immersed in the scriptures, okay? But, but what we see in chapter two and three is we see a guy who is planning to build great things for the kingdom of God. So, so think about this. He's been praying for four months when he, after he gets his burden from the scriptures and, and he knows what ought to be in Jerusalem. 
But, but during those four months, he's obviously been planning. He's obviously been crunching numbers. He's obviously been making a materials list and devising a to-do list. How do we know that? Because when, when the king says in verse four, so what are you requesting? He's already got it all laid out. Like when the king says that, you, you, know, you know what he says? Well, here's what I'm gonna need. This much time off, you know? The king asked him, when are you gonna be back? I mean, he knows that. Like, he, he's figured that out. Like, like, that's a hard thing. Like, how long does it take to do a construction project, folks? I mean, we're hardly ever right about that, are we? You know? And, and, and Nehemiah, like, he's able to give the king this, hey, here's, here's, here's what I need. Well, what else do you need? Well, I need letters from these political people. You know, I, I need letters from you to these nations. I, I, I know I'm going to have trouble with this guy. How does he know that? He's been planning. I, I know that, you know, these guys are going to come in and they're going to kill. So I need you to, you know, he's already thought of that. What else do you need? Well, I know the construction site, where it's at, and the closest forest is here. And he knows the name of the guy who runs the place. It's Asaph. I need you to give me a letter to Asaph because that's where I'm going to name my material. He's, he's planned the thing out. And he's ready. Proverbs 16.3 is an interesting verse. It says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Okay, now, I, I, was, I was trying to like get the angle on that verse and so I, I was struggling. Commit, commit. What does it mean? You know, I'm, I mean, I had some obvious ideas of what it means to commit. I looked it up in Hebrew. It's really a fascinating word. You know what it means? It means to roll. It means to roll something. That's really what it means, the, the, the root origin of the word. And, and so the picture is, I've got my work, right? I've got all my work. i got the things. And what am I doing? I'm rolling that to the Lord, <laughs> right? Like, like my, I'm taking my work, and I'm taking it to the Lord. You know, I'm, I'm saying, okay, God, I'm taking my work to you, right? You, know, you look over it. You, you tell me what to do. You empower me. You, like, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling, basically doing what Nehemiah did. Plan, scripture, pray. Like, like he's, he's taking his plans to the Lord. He, he's taking his work to the Lord. And, and Proverbs 16.3 says, when you commit your work to the Lord, then your plans will be established. One of my favorite sermons in our Romans series, um, whenever that was, that was a while back, last year, I think, was, was Romans 15. I, I'd have never thought that it would have been because I always, Romans 15, 16, you think it's just, you know, kind of wrapping things up. But, but I loved just seeing Paul plan. Um, in, in Romans 15, if you remember in verse 20, he says, thus I make it my ambition. He tells us his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ, not, where, not to preach the gospel where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. Paul basically says, my goal, what I want to build is I want to build the gospel where nobody else is there. And where did he get that? From the scriptures, right? Paul didn't make that up. So much so that he quotes the Old Testament scripture that he got that from. He's like, here's my ambition. Here's my goal. Here's what I'm going to build. And here's where I got it. And, and then if we go ahead and read the rest of that passage, he talks about it. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to take care of the business with the churches. I'm going to be freed up from that. And then I'm going to go to Rome. And I'm going to establish a base of operations there. I'm going to see you guys. And then I'm going to go to Spain. Like he's planning out. He's doing the same thing Nehemiah did here. Friends, to build something big demands that you plan. There's some of you guys in here. 
You could build small things without any planning. Actually, that's not true because you would just plan quickly, right? If there's a pile of lumber and I'm like, hey, guys, let's build birdhouses, you know? You still would have to plan, right? You'd have to, okay, what, what size is it going to be? You know, how big is it going to be? You know, am I going to have a pitched roof or a flat roof? You know, you, you'd immediately begin to do that in your mind, right? And, 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 and we probably, most all of us could, could build some sort of birdhouse. Mine would be really bad. Like a, it wouldn't pass bird code, you know? But some of you guys could pull that off. If you're going to build a stadium, you know, like an NFL-sized stadium, you, you're going to plan for years probably. You know, you're going to, working with the code and working with materials and, and contractors and city ordinances and, and, and architects. And I, I mean, so the bigger you get with things, the more it demands that you plan. That, that, that raises an interesting question. Is your family a big thing or a small thing? Your marriage, big thing or small thing? Your small group, big thing or small thing? Your team good class, big thing or small thing? You know, wow. That, that's, that's revealing to me, isn't it? Like, like, I think we automatically can know whether we look at something as a big thing or a small thing by how much we plan. That's interesting. So, Nehemiah plans. When he goes in Jerusalem, three days, he does nothing. Then he goes out at night and surveys the destruction. And it's bad. Some of it's so bad, he can't, he's got to get off his animal. You know, that's what chapter 2 says. He's got to get off his animal. He can't get through. The wall's so crumbled and rubble. There's times where what we're planning to build is in bad shape. Like it's, it's in rough shape. But again, anything is possible with God. Man, there's something incredibly exciting about building with God, isn't there? Like, like I'm building with God. I'm building my family with God. I'm building my, with God. I mean, wow, that, that, that like opens up this world of anything is, a, is possible. Expectations. Doesn't mean we won't have trials. That's coming next week. Come back next week because, man, Nehemiah gets like, just bombarded with trials. That struggles, all right? And that's, that's part of the process, okay? We're not there yet. But, but here's where I want to get to. Do you have a burden? You've had two weeks, if you were here two weeks ago, you've had two weeks to kind of process that. Hopefully you left here. And that, that was a question we left with. Do you, do you have a burden? Like, is there something in your life that you know it ought to be different? So, so what ought your marriage to be? What ought your family to be? What ought your neighborhood to be? What ought your job to be? What ought, your, 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 what ought the life of the orphan and the widow and the homeless and the refugee and the needy, what ought to be in our church? That, that's where we get our burden, right? Not, not, not by our opinion, but by the scriptures. So, so what ought to be so in, 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 in our life? You know, what's burning in us? That, man, that ought to be different. This ought to be a certain way. And then, do we go through this process? Do we pray? with the scriptures and plan and then come back to the scriptures and then come back to pray and then come back to plan and come back to the scriptures come back you know it, it, it just it, they should all work together okay now you know how you know you're doing that are you writing anything down i struggle with man is that taking this because some of you guys are just wicked smart you know god's just giving you that and so maybe like you're able to hold it all in your head 
Like, I am not at all that guy. Like, I, you know, I, I mean, like, literally, if I have a thought, you know, by the time I find my pen, I'm, half the time I'm like, ah, I lost it, you know? I mean, like, it's, you, know, you know what I'm saying? So I'm not that guy at all. Maybe some of you, if you are just like, you know, scored a, you know, perfect score on the ACT, super. Okay, you're the exception. All right, most of us, we got to write it down, right? I mean, whatever it is, you plan a meal. What do I need at the grocery store, right? And so, so one of the ways you know, am I trying to build something, is you're writing stuff down. I fill up several notebooks a year, sometimes three or four. And, and, and it's all just that sort of stuff. God, God, is, God is maybe opening up a door for our expansion issues. Maybe, maybe, you know, I'm pray, praying, I'm praying, I'm going back to Scripture, and I'm playing. But in my notebook, yeah, I, I could show you pages of just, okay, God, here. Things that have to be done, things that have to come together, things that might work, things that don't. How much would this cost? You know, what are the benefits? Where do I find this in Scripture? You, you, write, you write it down. Guys, we are builders. That's what we are. You're like, oh, you're just saying that because we're in Nehemiah. No, no. 1 Corinthians 3. Listen to what Paul says. 3.9. If we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Okay, listen to this. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. You're building on something. You may not be building well, all right, but, but if you've been given the gospel here this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are building on that. You, you may be the guy. We drove by some road construction the other day, and I was in Oklahoma City, you know. You know how to irritate you, got to stand. We, we waited in line for like 20 minutes, you know, cre- just creeping along I-40 there, you know. And we get to like where they're actually working. No joke, five guys, five guys, you know, like this, you know, over on the side, you know, just visiting, you know. I rolled out my window. Get to work. No, you know, I didn't do that. But yeah, you know, I wanted to, you know. And maybe you're that. Maybe you've been given this great gift of salvation. You've been redeemed. Your sins are forgiven. You've been justified. And you are standing on your shovel watching other people build. You're building just really poorly. But he says everybody's building. Verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the foundation. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. One day, your work for the kingdom is going to be laid up. It's going to be put out. It's going to be displayed. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. All right, so you're building. Let's let's do some examples. Marriage. Some of you are married. All right, you're building a marriage. What do you do? Well, you do not turn on your television and look what marriage ought to be, okay? You know what you do? You look in the scriptures, right? This is, what, this is what Nehemiah did. What's Jerusalem supposed to be? Well, let me. He didn't say what is it. It's a pile of rubble. He says, what ought it to be? Well, Isaiah 62 says, what, what ought marriage to be? Well, Ephesians 5 says it ought to be a picture of Christ in the church. 
Proverbs chapter 5 says it ought to be satisfying. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Malachi 2.15 says it ought to be an environment in which godly offspring are raised up. Okay, whole bunch of other places in the scripture, what marriage ought to be. So we go to the scriptures, what it ought to be. And then what do we do? We pray and we plan. Question, some of you have been married a long time. Have you ever wrote anything down about your marriage? What I'm asking is, have you ever planned? Have you ever said, okay, I want my marriage to be what the scripture says it is. So, hmm, what am I going to need? What am I going to need? What, what do I need to do? What, is the, what are the big rocks here? What is the foundation? Okay, now, now what am I? Well, I'm, we're going to need family prayer, all right? If we're going to be this, well, we've got to have family prayer. I've got to pray with my wife, all right? So that's, that's a goal I'm going to make. Um, man, I've got I to gotta serve her humbly. You know, it talks all about humility in the scriptures. I was reading that in my quiet time, and so how can I be humble? What are some ways that I can be? What are some ways that I'm not humble that I can change? Okay, um, we, we need a mentor couple. You know, man, we really need to see how this looks. And, and so who are, here's a list of couples that I admire. I need to run that by the wife and see if maybe we can get together with these couples on a regular basis. What, have you ever done any kind of plan? I mean, again, is it big or small? If it's a birdhouse, probably throw it together. You know, it's not a big, birds, do they really care? Oh, they live in nests, so like you'd think any kind of junk house would be a step up, right? It's a small thing. You don't need to plan. And so I guess if marriage is a small thing, then you don't, I guess you don't need to plan. I mean, give it a prayer every once in a while, right? You, you know my experience with uh, doing marriage counseling, a ton of it? My experience is this. Sometimes there's this huge systemic problems, you know, sometimes really big you know, you know what it is a lot of times? It's, there's never been any work. Honestly. There just wasn't. There's just, like there wasn't ever any kind of intentional, this is what it ought to look like, and so what do we got to do to make it look like that, and what are our problems, and what kind of struggles are we coming into, and where are we lacking, what kind of resources do we need? There, 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 wasn't, there wasn't any of that. Family. Big, small. Children. Big, small. Honestly, a lot of people say small. A lot of people say birdhouse it, you know. Kids, I mean, make sure they got Doritos in the, in the fridge, you know, and then do they know where the bus stop is? Make sure they got a device to play on so that they don't bug you. Birdhouse it. Man, I would say big. I'd say big. Have you ever written anything down? Have you ever, put, and again, you're, you're the ACT guru guy, you know, you're like, man, I remember my grocery list from four weeks ago. I could tell you we were going to make, you know, Greek salad. I, okay, great, great. All right, so forget the write down thing. That's fine. That's fine. If you can hold it all in your head, perfect for you. For me, man, I got to, right, I got to plan. I got I to strategize. What's this going to look like? What are my, what are, what are the, what is, the, what is the bent of, of my kids? What are the big issues? What are the big rocks? What's worth fighting or what's not? Pray, plan, check the scriptures. Your small group. I know if you provide beanie weenies and you're a you know, friendly couple, you'll get some people, but, but actually have you taken the time to say, is this a big thing or a small thing? Your, minist- your own ministry of disciple making. Your own ministry of Jesus, Jesus, last thing he says, go make disciples of all nations. Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right before he rockets into the heavens, Acts 1.8, you're going to be my witnesses. 
Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the earth. There he goes. Now, here we are. What, what's your plan? Pray, plan, strategize, and then build. Build. And now, last, last point. When you've got a burden, and you've got a plan, and you've prayed, and you know it's scriptural, you know what the next thing you'll do is? You'll pull other people into the building. Look at what Nehemiah does. Uh, verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble that we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And then, then you know what? This is really cool. We don't have time to read chapter three, but if you read chapter three, you know, you know what it says? These guys built this section and next to them was these guys and next to them was these guys and next to them was these guys and next to them was these guys. Over 40 groups of people. You know my favorite? My favorite is, uh, where's that at? 12. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Yeah. Okay. Ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired. He and his girls. He and his daughters. I don't know why I like that. I just, can't you see him? You know, this guy's got like eight, eight girls or something, you know. And he's like, we'll take this section. You know, his neighbors were like, oh, you got girls. He's like, my girls cannot work your boy. You know, you know, I mean, I had to go like something like that, right? Your boys are sissies, you know. Hey, watch my girl. Over 40 groups, all kinds of variety. God's design is to accomplish his work through his people. That's his design. We are his servants. That's what verse 20 says. We are his servants will rise and build. We, his servants, will arise and build. That's what God's servants do. By nature of what it means to be a believer, by nature of what it means to know that you are broken in your sins and to turn in faith to Jesus Christ, the King, the Messiah, who lived the perfect life and died a death on your behalf and put your faith and be joined to him. That means the old you dies, the new you lives, and you're not your own. It's in our DNA to be about the Father's business, our spiritual DNA. And you're not meant to build alone. Okay, first of all, it's, it's not your mission. It's God's. If you've been joined by faith to Jesus, your life's not your own. The mission's not your own. It's, it's God's. You're a part of God's building. That's what 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5 say. Is you're, you're a brick in God's building. And, and so when you're building for the kingdom of God, you're joining a larger story. Yeah, this, this is exciting to me. When, when you're building, when you're making disciples, when you're building your family according to God's design, when you're building the church, then you join Abraham. The, the man of faith, right? You join Joseph, who saved all of Israel by his relentless faithfulness. You join Moses, who led the Israelite slaves out of the promised land to build a nation. You join Joshua, who built the promised land. You join King David, who built an everlasting kingdom where the king of kings will reign forever and ever. You join Isaiah and Jeremiah and Elisha and Elijah, who built the prophetic word of God that will never fail. You join Nehemiah, the builder of the wall. You join John the Baptist, whose baptism of repentance built a way for Jesus to come. You, built, you, you joined Mary and Joseph who built a family for the Son of God to step into our world. You joined Jesus 
who built a salvation of justification and redemption through his own sacrificial death and glorious resurrection life. You joined Peter, whose profession caused Jesus to say, on this rock, I will build my church. And you joined countless others whose legacy of faith, on their shoulders we stand. Paul understood this. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, he changes it to an agricultural metaphor, and he says this. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Chapter 3 is just this incredible picture of, of a whole bunch of people who say, I can't do the whole wall, but I'll do this section. Me and my girls take this section. What, what parts you got? What part do you got? Do you, do you got, hey, I'll take this section. I mean, I'll, guys, I'll, I'll take that. I'm, I'm, I'm taking this role in my family. I'll take this role in my neighborhood, in the church. Hey, I got this section. And I'm bringing others in. What part do you have? And don't be the shovel guy. Uh, someday, you will incredibly regret that. 1 Corinthians 3 says, you'll suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, you'll suffer loss. I don't know all that that means. I've talked to you about that passage before, but I don't want to know. I don't know what it means to have eternal loss in heaven. I, I, I don't know exactly. But I know it's what Paul says. Let's rise and build. Let's rise and build. Father, help us, God, to pray, uh, to immerse our, our oughts in the scriptures. God, help us to build. Help us to plan. God, I pray, I ask you, God, that your hand would be on us. God, that your hand of power and door-opening, impossible situation-destroying power and grace and favor would be on us. Father, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand, please?